Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. My name is Wes McCain. I'm a senior pastor here. I'm one of the elders here at Cross Point. And uh, it's just good to be back. We missed last week, and uh, we miss being away from y'all. We love y'all dearly. We were able to celebrate with Myra's family. Uh, her brother, uh, Nathan, was baptized last week at their home church. And so that was just a sweet time for us to be together uh, with them. And so, but we miss being with y'all. And so, um, if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, uh, if you would turn to the book of Mark, uh, Mark chapter 1, and we'll be looking at verses 9 through 13. And uh, as uh, Caleb said, we're beginning a journey through the book of Mark, and we're two sermons in. And uh, this is the second sermon in that series. And so I'm excited about what the Lord has to teach us just in these few verses of 9 through 13. That might be some pretty familiar to you if you're... Uh, if you have encountered the Bible before. Uh, Once you arrive there, if you would stand for the reading of God's Word. Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open And the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, even just these two scenes that were given in verses 9 through 13, that they have been given to us to know you by, to greater understand Jesus, to lead us to belief and faith in Christ, that he is the Christ, the Son of God, our Savior who is filled with the Spirit and sinless, God, in every way. Lord, we thank you for the gathering this morning that we have of the people, members, guests, attenders alike, that we have come in here to hear from you, God, from your word. And I pray by the Spirit working, God, you would draw us to yourself that you would open up our eyes to see the beauty and glory of who Christ is, that he is better than any treasure in this world, that he is worth our time and attention, God. And so I pray right now that there might be many in here that might be struggling this morning. Let them be encouraged through your word. Many in here who are God's struggling with sins. I pray that they would find empowerment by your spirit and through Christ Jesus to fight against sin. And God, many of us in here, if not all of us, we need to be fed by your word and the truth this morning. Fill us up this morning. Nourish our hearts with your word. It's in Christ's name I pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever had something like so hyped up to you, like it just raised the ceiling on expectations, like Somebody said, man, wait till you try this restaurant, or wait till you go to this theme park, or wait till you see this movie, or wait till you meet this person, and they just sell it to you. Like, you will never believe this. Anybody that kind of person who just oversells things and under, you know, you know, anybody like that? You're just, you're going to talk about it like, I, I cannot believe you've never done this. I cannot believe you've never eaten this. I cannot believe you've never seen this. I cannot believe you've never met this person. And then you're the person who has been sold this bill of goods, and it's been real hyped up to you, 
And then you go with that person to the restaurant, to the movie, or you go with that person to meet the person that they described to you. And what happens? You're like, this is it? You really sold this person like they were a big celebrity, and I'm not really impressed, right? You really sold this restaurant, and honestly, this is equivalent to a McDonald's to me, you know? Like, they oversell, they get you real hyped, real excited, and then you're given the reality, and it just doesn't seem to fit the description, right? doesn't seem to fit everything that they sold to you. And let's just talk about what we discussed last time we were in the book of Mark. Is Jesus is really hyped up, right? John's talking about Jesus, and he says, look, you think I'm great? You think what I'm doing is awesome? Wait till the one who is coming, the one I'm telling you about comes, because guess what? I'm baptizing you with water, but he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John is hyping up Jesus in some sense, saying, man, look at this guy. And that's huge hype, right? I just baptized you with water, but this person is going to come, and he's going to give you the Spirit, right? But you read the next verse in verse 9, and it says, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And you're kind of like, huh? What? This doesn't really fit up to the hype, right? He's from Nazareth? That, that's where this guy's from? And many of you, that may not like stick out in your mind, but this was a problem for Nathaniel, you know, in the book of John, if you remember that, when they're, uh, he's describing, hey, they're the one who's to come, he's, co- he's coming from Nazareth. And you know what Nathaniel's response is? It's like, can anything good come from Nazareth? It's like saying, can anything good come from Livingston Parish? Like, it's that, hey, look, I can make that joke. I'm not from there. So uh, people make the joke about dry prong, Okay. So can anything good come out of there, right? Because it's Nazareth. And so the next verse when you read, hey, he's going to come and give you the Holy Spirit, and then you find out where he's from, Nazareth. It's like, really, this is the guy? And then you hear that he's going to come and baptize with the Holy Spirit. And verse 9 then goes to tell you that, no, he's actually coming to be baptized. And so all this hype that John gives, you think, is this really the guy? But... Like Nathaniel, like Philip said to Nathaniel, he said, come and see. Come and see. And I think that's the invitation that we have this morning when we look at these verses 9 through 13. Come and see that Jesus does live up to the hype. In his baptism and in his temptation, he does meet the expectations. There will not be any response like, I'm unimpressed or that doesn't live up to the hype. What you will see just in these two short stories, Jesus does live up to the hype, and that his baptism and his temptation demonstrate that he truly is what Mark 1.1 says. He truly is the Son of God, God in the flesh, and he truly is the Christ, the Messiah, the one who they've been waiting for to save them from their sins. And so we're invited, like Nathaniel, to come and see Jesus because he does live up to the hype. And so let's look at the first set of verses in the first scene in verses 9 through 11, the baptism of Jesus. And this will be on your outline if you have one of those. The first point is the baptism of Jesus, verses 9 through 11. Have you ever made a claim and that person says, prove it, right? 
you ever made a big claim and, and you say, well, yeah, I've, uh, I've, I've done this, or oh, yeah, I can do this, or, yeah, you know, and that person says, prove it. You know, I'm not just going to take your word on it. Don't you hate that, right? Just like, just believe me. I don't, I don't want to have to. Look, I can dunk a basketball. Just believe me, right? Don't make me try it. And so those people who always kind of want proof, prove it, prove it, prove it, right? Show me. I'm not just going to take your word for it, right? And the claim that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, if that's the claim and that's the assertion that's being made about the entire book of Mark, which is Mark 1-1, in the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, that's, that's the claim, that's the assertion, then the rest of the book of Mark is the, basically, it's the prove it. Prove it that he is the Christ, the Son of God. And so here, in his very baptism, is Jesus' proof that he truly is the Son of God. And so look at what he does. He comes to, comes to John in verse 9, and he comes from Nazareth of Galilee, and he comes to be baptized by John in the Jordan. So he's not only going to baptize people with the Holy Spirit, but he's also going to follow in accordance with baptism as well. Matthew will give some more details when he says he did it to fulfill all righteousness. And so Jesus is baptized, and he's baptized in an interesting way. It says in verse 10, and when he came up out of the water, which if you're any familiar with Baptists, you can't, you've come to a Baptist church, and we believe in baptism by immersion, going under the water and coming out of the water. Why do we believe that? Because it seems like that's exactly what happened to Jesus himself. He went in the water and he came out of the water. And we do that now just like we did two weeks ago with baptizing Cooper Smith. It is a symbol and a demonstration of we were once dead in our sins, and Jesus gave us new spiritual life. Out of the grave we've come. And that's what is depicted in baptism. And we do this because we want to follow the pattern of our Savior, who was immersed in water and came out. And so he's baptized by immersion, and we follow that pattern here. But why was Jesus baptized in the first place? Well, like I said, he said it in Matthew 4, to fulfill all righteousness. But I think there's further, you know, further things that we can say about this, is that why was Jesus baptized? Well, it's, it's basically showing that he's received an endorsement, kind of, in a sense. That he's showing people that he has the Father's, his Father's endorsement for his ministry, right? We know what endorsements are, you know. Uh, athletes get endorsements or maybe authors, they get endorsements on the back of their book covers and things like that. It says, man, you should read this book or, you know, hey, this guy is, you know, endorsed by Powerade or whatever it may be to show that they kind of have their approval or it's the real thing in some sense. And so Jesus's baptism here is one of the ways to show his credentials. He is who he says he is. He has the credentials to do what he says he's going to do. It's the proof. And so I want to walk through just each of these small aspects here in Jesus' baptism because we can easily glaze over these things, right? Say, oh man, he got baptized, that's it. But there's significant features and aspects that are going on here in his baptism that says, this ain't no normal baptism and this ain't no, no normal God being baptized. Just look at this here. The first thing that, that we're told and, and I'll say this, all of these things, they're significant because they have all Old Testament themes and motifs running behind them. 
Just listen to this. The first thing that happens in his baptism is what? Immediately, he saw the heavens being torn open. Now, if you go do a look at all the other gospels, they don't use this kind of language. They just say the heavens opened up. This is like the heavens tore open, like shattering it, like tearing it apart, right? The heavens opened up. And if that doesn't by just, you know, face value say, okay, this is different because I know when I got baptized, the heavens didn't uh, tear asunder that day. And so something significant is happening when the heavens tear open, right? And I think the reason why Mark tells us that the heavens tear open are torn apart when Jesus is baptized is because this language of tearing open is a sign of divine revelation, that God is entering in to human history to save his people. If you're thinking, where do you get that, Wes? Well, I think we would, uh, you know, we can all remember a verse in Isaiah 64. It says this, Oh, that you would rend the heavens, tear open the heavens, and come down that the mountains might quake at your presence. And it goes on in Isaiah 64 to say, when the heavens are rendered open, that means that God is coming to save his people. God's coming to save his people. So when you hear the heavens are tearing open here, you can say, okay, this is significant. This is an indication that the one who is being baptized has come for a purpose, and that is to save his people from their sins. Would you allow me just to be really nerdy for just one second? Can I get, I didn't hear any yes. Uh, so I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, so this word here, uh, torn open, doesn't have an, happen a lot. Doesn't happen a lot. And it definitely doesn't happen a lot in Mark's gospel. But there is one other place where it does happen in Mark's gospel. It happens in Mark 15. Same word there. When Jesus is crucified and he died. And the veil that was in the temple. Does anybody remember what happened to it? It was torn in two. Rendered asunder. So the one whom has come, the God to come save us from our sins, tears open the heavens, and then when he dies on the cross, and for our sins, the veil is torn, so now we have access to this God through this person who was baptized, who rendered asunder the heavens, and also tears the veil that separate us between God and man. The tearing of the heavens is important because when that centurion sees and experiences Jesus' death there in that, in that moment, and the veil is torn in the temple, his declaration is this, this truly was the Son of God, which is exactly what Mark is trying to make the point of. Second thing that happens in this is that the, the Spirit descends on him like a dove. The Spirit is not a dove, it's not an animal, it's not an it, it's a person, it's a he, but there is a sense where he is descending on him like a dove. And the resting of the Spirit upon Jesus confirms that Jesus is coming to do something new, to make something new in, in, in some way. Because if we remember that at the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis 1-1, it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And verse 2 is really interesting too, because we see that the Spirit is doing what? hovering over the face of the waters, right? The Spirit is at work in creation to bring about things into existence. 
And now the Spirit is resting upon Jesus, confirming his ministry, filling him for ministry that he is about to do, and saying that his ministry is about bringing and making things new, right? That the Spirit is the mark that this truly is the Savior, the Messiah. Isaiah 11 is really clear about this, that the Davidic king is going to have the Spirit descend upon him. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from the root shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The same thing is said in Isaiah 42. So when the Spirit descends upon Jesus in his baptism, saying that this is the Isaiah 11 guy, this is the Isaiah 42 guy, this is the Davidic king savior who has come, and we know this because the Spirit rests upon him. The Spirit rests upon him. So we know that this is significant, that Jesus is significant because at his baptism, the heavens tear open. At his baptism, the Spirit descends upon him. And then thirdly, at his baptism, there is a voice from heaven. You know, voices, we don't get lots of voices in the Bible from heaven. Hey, you, right? Maybe like you might see in that Ten Commandments movie or something like that. But when you, when you hear a voice from heaven, it should say to you that something is significant here in the Bible. Because we don't have a lot of verses about God speaking audibly out of the heavens. But when we do, we know that someone is special when they receive it. Because God even says this to Israel. Look, in Deuteronomy 4, he says, What other gods of the nations speak to their people like I speak to you from heaven? Right? He makes that point. There is no other people like you who their God from heaven speaks to them. Right? From heaven. And so now, this God speaks at Jesus' baptism. And he won't just speak at Jesus' baptism, he'll also speak at Jesus' transfiguration. A voice from heaven will speak at Jesus' transfiguration there. Again, authenticating and showing that this person is from God and is God in the flesh. The last thing is that this voice from heaven says something. The content of what he says about Jesus is important. Is that Jesus is the true Son of God. You know, there's other people who are called the Son of God in the Bible. Adam was called God's Son in Luke chapter 4, verse 38. Israel was called God's Son in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. But this is really the Son of God. This is the real Son of God. Because unlike Adam and Israel... This son of God never sinned, and he rules over the nations as the divine Davidic king. And he's the beloved son. He's the beloved son. Just like in Genesis 22, Abraham and Isaac. Anybody remember what Abraham said of his son Isaac there? This is my beloved son, right? This is my beloved son. Psalm 2 7. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. So God's saying, this is the Messiah. This is the Davidic king who's going to rule over all nations. This is him. And so in this episode, we see lots of things. We see the spirit descending, the heavens tearing open, a voice from heaven, the father speaking. This is a great Trinitarian text, is it not? We believe in the Trinity. And we see all three figures here. We see the Father speaking from heaven. We see Jesus being baptized. We see the Spirit descending upon him. 
Three persons, one essence. Three persons, one essence here to affirm Jesus' ministry. And so, just let me give you a piece of application right here. If you've said, okay, we, we know he's the Messiah, he's the Son of God, he's all these things. Well, so how should we respond to now we get this affirmation that we get his credentials that Jesus is all these things? How should you respond that he is the Son of God? I would say what the Bible says, listen to him. Because in Mark 9, 7, when the same thing is said, it says this, and a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud and said, this is my beloved son. The next three words are very important. So you might be thinking, what does it matter to me right now that Jesus is the Son of God? What does it matter to me right now that God spoke from heaven at his baptism and at his transfiguration that he is the Son? What does it matter to me? The next three words should matter to you a lot. Because Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the long-awaited Savior. He is the Son of God. He is the Christ. Here's the next three words that are the most important thing to you. Listen to Listen to him. Why does it matter that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Because it requires us to obey and listen to everything he says. This morning, you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. You might affirm that truth that he is who he says he is. You might think he is spectacular and amazing and everything that this text says right here. But are you listening to him? And you might be thinking, well, I didn't ever, I've never heard a voice from heaven, Wes. That's what I'm not talking about listening. What I'm saying about listening, I'm saying, is that God has spoken his word. Are you obeying it? That is listening to him. So why does it matter? Because on the last day, We will not just be assessed by what we believe about Jesus, but whether or not we've listened to him and obeyed him. Are you right now obeying Jesus? Are you here just to say, I'm I'm just here to affirm him. I'm just here to say, "I, I believe what he is. That's not enough. He calls us to believe, to repent, and to obey. Are you living in obedience right now? This morning, maybe you're here and you're a skeptic. I'm not going to pretend like everybody in here is affirming and everybody in here is condoning and everybody hears, yeah, I believe Jesus and what he says. You might be in here a skeptic and say, I'm on the fence about this one, Wes. I don't really know what you're presenting if Jesus really is the Son of God, whether he really is the Christ. I just need more proof, right? I need more proof. Prove it. And what I'll say to you here is this is that your problem is not proof. Your problem is not more data. Your problem is not more information. Your problem is not proof. Submission is your problem. Because it doesn't matter how much data you collect, how much information you collect on Jesus, there will not be enough to convince you that he is truly the Son of God if the Spirit is not at work in in you and if you do not submit to who he is. Luke 16 says this very thing. You remember the the parable of Lazarus and the rich man? And the rich man is sent into Sheol, and he says, go and tell my brothers to not come down here, that it's terrible to change their way. 
And you know what the response is to them? If they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe somebody who is resurrected from the dead. Meaning we have the proof right here. We have what has been said. So your problem, skeptic, this morning is not proof. It's not data. It's not information. It's will you listen to him and submit to what he has said and who he is. This morning I want to call all of you to submit and to listen to him. This Spirit-empowered Savior will be driven out by the Spirit into the wilderness to demonstrate that not only is He the Spirit-filled Savior, but He is the sinless Savior. And this is point number two, the temptation of Jesus. There are two kinds of people in this world. The person who, when they're driving down the road and they miss their exit, will go to the next exit Get off on the exit, do a U-turn, come back, and try it again. And then there's the other person who realizes that they missed their exit and will drastically turn through that median section just to make that exit. Anybody want to in here claim that to be them? Oh, don't even think you're better than me. I mean, I do it. You know that person who's like, oh man, I missed the exit. And you know that little section that they give you, that they, that they give you, right? And you're like, that's what that's for. For the people, Myra's like, you're not supposed to do that. That's what that's for. They give you that 10 to 15 yards to say, oh, I missed it. Last chance kind of thing. And even the grass is not necessarily out of bounds, Just want to tell you all the conversations we're having in our car right now. So, there's those two kinds of people. The ones who say, I'm going to go to the next exit and safely take that. And then the drastic term people. Just cut it real quick. And I will say this. This section in 12 and 13 feels like that drastic turn. That cut it real sharply. Because we just got out of a section about Jesus' baptism where the Father is speaking, commendation of Jesus and his ministry. The Spirit is descending upon him and resting on him. And now the next verse in verse 12 is this. The Spirit drives him out into the wilderness. That's a sharp turn. Didn't see that coming, right? Driven out into the wilderness, right? And I think this drastic turn here is to show us something, again, about Jesus' nature. And I want to just hone in on two little details here real quick, but take note of the setting and of the duration of his time there. I think that's important. I think you'll recognize that just because we've come out of Exodus. Like I said two weeks ago, we got out of Exodus, but do you really ever get out of Exodus? Right? And so if you remember this, the terms 40 days or 40 and wilderness are pretty significant terminology right in the book of Exodus. There's a lot of things happening in 40 days in Exodus, right? There's a lot of wilderness in Exodus, right? And so here I don't want us to pass over these two things, that Jesus has been driven out into the wilderness, and he's there for 40 days, and that should raise some flags. Uh, It sounds a lot like Israel, does it not? And we can also see that temptation occurring in the wilderness, just like Israel was tempted and tried in the wilderness, right? 
in their wilderness wanderings. And now Satan even tempts the Son of God. But Jesus, the true Son of God, does not succumb to temptation like Adam and like Israel did. Adam and Eve are tempted in the garden, and yet what happens? They sin. Israel is tempted and tried in the wilderness, and what do they do? They sin by grumbling and complaining, right? They failed, but Jesus, when tempted in, by Satan in the wilderness, he's victorious over Satan and sin. Adam and Israel succumb where Jesus succeeds. And in this wilderness, there are some interesting things here. And he was with the wild animals. Now, maybe none of you were bothered by this, but I was. Why is wild animals even being mentioned here, right? One author says it like this, uh, a guy by the name of Jason Keyes. He says, he titled um, this verse, Where the Wild Things Are, right? Anybody remember that children's book? And we don't get this detail in the other, uh, the other accounts of Jesus' temptation. Remember, Matthew's is very long in Matthew chapter 4 about Jesus' temptation. But we don't see anything about wild animals there. So why does Mark, uh, you know, tell us about wild animals? Well, you could take the first position and say, uh, Mark just kind of threw it in there and really no significance to it. I think we could all say, I think it's probably significant if he included it in there, right? Another, another explanation of why wild animals are in here is that it could be an indication that Jesus has basically gone into Satan's territory, his kind of home field advantage. He's in the wilderness where it's been associated with temptation and trial. And so Jesus is basically walking across the line, right? the enemy's line, into his domain, into his territory where Satan has home-filled advantage and there's potential dangers out there, including wild animals, right? Wild animals. But regardless, even though Satan has home-filled advantage in the wilderness with his wild animals, Jesus still beats him, right? Doesn't have any control over him. That's one thought, one interpretation of this. Another interpretation, and I think that this, that this actually may be closer, is that the wild animals in this wilderness indicate that, one, Jesus is unharmed here. He goes into a dangerous place and is unharmed, surrounded by dangerous things. And it's a sign that Jesus is bringing about a different kind of creation, a new creation where there is no fear of these things anymore. And that will only be truly fulfilled and realized in the new creation. And that makes sense of what the prophets told us. Makes sense of what the prophet Isaiah specifically told us. And we've already seen Isaiah 11 here. But I want to read to you what the Messiah is going to do when he inaugurates and brings in this new creation and what it's going to be like. What the new world is described as, the new heavens and new earth. It says this, and you'll remember this, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf and a little child shall lead them. 
The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In the day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as the signals for peoples, all of him of him shall the nations inquire, and the resting place shall be glorious. Isaiah 65, 25. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food, and they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. Look at this. Look at this picture of what's going to be with the Messiah when he reigns over everything. There's not going to be any danger. It, it will be like going to a zoo and there's no cages. Can you think about that right now? You go to a zoo and you're like, Hey, you know what? I think we should put the lions um, in the cage with the, um, hmm, let's say, what's a good animal to put a lion in the cage with? Uh, uh, children. Let's, go, let's use children. Did I say animals? I meant uh, humans. Uh, children. Or nobody's going to let their kid play by a snake's hole, right? I remember just a couple of years ago, uh, we had a snake come out in our backyard, big king snake. And, um, you know, there's a few of our boys who came in screaming that there was a snake in the backyard. And there was one of our boys who continued to stand beside it. Go ahead and give you a guess. Yes, Hayes. It was Hayes. Hayes, again, he has no concept of that this is a dangerous animal. But doesn't it give you kind of a picture of what the new heavens and new earth are? There is no fear. You, know, you don't need to scream anymore around these dangerous predators anymore. This is what the new, the new heavens and new earth are going to be like. No more dangers and threats. And what Revelation 21 says, there's no more mourning, pain, sorrow, death. It will all be wiped away in Christ Jesus. And so Jesus is here in the wilderness, a dangerous place with wild animals that should bring him danger, but it's a taste of what is to come where we will no longer be in danger by the things of this world. This is the world that the Messiah is bringing in. We don't have it right now. We don't get to experience right now. We still have to go zoo to zoos with cages, but in the new heavens and new earth, that will all be wiped away. No more. No more. And so Jesus is giving us an indication of what the new heavens and new earth will be like. And not only that, in that time while he was in the wilderness, the angels were ministering to him, which I think means that Jesus is not just an angel. There are some people, some cults and denominations, I would say, that believe that Jesus is this kind of supernatural, exalted angel. Jesus is not an angel is that we see the angels are coming to minister to him. The book of Hebrews is really clear about this in Hebrews chapter 1. Did God ever say to an angel that you are my son? Did God ever say this about an angel? And the response is, never, no. This is only about Christ. That he is superior to angels, as the book of Hebrews says. So Jesus is being ministered to by angels. He is not inferior to them. He is superior to them. They serve him. What should we take away here from this temptation scene? Well, I, I, want, I want us to take away this. We've talked about Jesus kind of this high exalted status 
everything that's been said about him so far. But I want you to take this away, friends, family, church members, is yes, the Son of God is declared to be the Christ, the Messiah. But he is also the Son of God who can sympathize with struggling sinners, who can sympathize with the tempted. If you think that Jesus is kind of like this CEO who stands at the top in the ivory tower and doesn't know what the lowly people at the bottom ever do and what they experience, take this, what Hebrews 2 says, since therefore children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things as Jesus Christ, that through his death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Slavery. For surely, he, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews 4, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Church, listen to this. If you are struggling right now and you feel like there is no way that God or Christ Jesus can understand what you're going through right now, that you are in such pain and turmoil over sin, listen. You feel like you're being tempted to such a degree that no one has ever experienced. Listen, we do not have a Savior who cannot sympathize with your needs. And when everyone else doesn't seem to get it and understand Jesus tempted in every way. He understands. We see that here in his own temptation. He said he was tempted by Satan with many different things. And so the Son of God sympathizes with your struggle. He sympathizes with your pain and your wrestling. He sympathizes with your temptation. The Son of God sympathizes with those who are tempted. But here's what's great. The Son of God, He sympathizes with, the tempted, with those who are tempted, but not, does not succumb to temptation. That's what you need. That's what we all need. We don't need just a Savior who sympathizes with us. We need a Savior who does not succumb to temptation. When we do, because we often succumb to temptation. Amen? Right? We don't need a Savior who just sympathizes. We need a Savior who does not sin. And that's what Hebrews 4 says. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted, and here's the best words, yet without sin. That's the kind of Savior you need, one who sympathizes and one who is sinless. He knows what you go through. He understands your temptation, yet he has never succumbed to it. And that is how he can save us. He doesn't just sympathize with you. He can save you from the temptation that you've given into and sinned. He's a spirit-filled and sinless Savior. That's what we need. Take comfort in the Savior when you're struggling with sin. Go to him. He understands. But also go to him because he can save you from your sins. And he is the one who doesn't just sympathize with us, 
He doesn't just save us because he's without sin, but he also promises us victory over sin, is that we can have victory over sin, partially in this life and perfectly in the life to come. You can have victory over sin. Right now, many of you might be in a situation right now that you have found a pattern of sin over and over and over again in your life that you just struggle against and can't give up. And you've gotten to this point of despair to say, there's no hope for me. There's no victory in sight. There's no way I'm gonna be able to release this and give this up. Listen to this. Is that because of Christ, in Christ, because he gives the spirit, you can have victory over any sin in this life. Listen to what John tells us in 1 John 5, 4 through 5. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? You want victory this morning over your sin? Believe in Jesus, the Son of God. He is sinless and he sympathizes with you. You may be in great need this morning. One who is wrestling with sin. Run to Jesus. He is spirit empowered and filled and can help you fight your sin because he sympathizes with you. You may be in great need this morning because you're wrestling in sin or two, because you're dead in sin. And you also need Jesus to resurrect you from the dead to give you new life and new hope. You will never be able to have victory over sin, death and hell by yourself, but there is one who what, through his death and resurrection defeats death, sin, hell forever. And in him, you can find victory as well. Trust in this spirit-filled and sinless Savior. Let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you that we do have the hope in this life that there is one who has come who is sinless and spirit-filled and it is not us, it is Jesus Christ. And we can have hope in our battle with sin because of the empowerment of the Spirit and the redemption that we have in Christ, death and resurrection. God, let us draw upon that. Let us draw together with confidence to the throne of grace, knowing that we will receive his mercy. Let anyone in here this morning who has not received it draw near to Christ. It's in his name we pray these things. Amen.